Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Story of Nowhere podcast. I'm Daniel McCarthy. Today I've got a supplemental episode for you. It's a follow-up to episode 10, The Lost Utopia of Socrates. This is a recording of my Great Books Club meeting, which I host with Alice, and in this meeting we specifically discuss books 2 and 3 of Plato's Republic. So we'll be talking about the origins of society itself, which, again, I covered in episode 10, but we'll also be talking about some of the more detailed elements of the big metropolitan utopia that Socrates and his friends craft in order to find justice. Usually we keep these meetings private, but this particular one was so enjoyable for all of us involved that we decided that it was worthy of making into a show. So not only will you be hearing from Alice and myself, but you'll also be hearing from our friends Mike in Mexico and Ludger in Germany. Now the reason I'm labeling this as a bonus episode rather than as episode 11 of the Story of Nowhere podcast is simply because of the audio quality issues that I had. When you hear Alice and me speak, the audio comes through just fine. We're using the same microphone. And yet, for some reason, when Ludger and Mike speak, there's this echo, uh, which I didn't hear when we were actually recording live, but is very apparent in this recording that you're going to hear. I did my best to remove it and uh, tamp it down as much as I could, but even still, it is there. You're first going to hear it around 35 minutes into the recording, Uh, I'm not sure why it wasn't present when they were speaking before that point, and then after that point, it remains present, yet the intensity of it does soften. So when you hear it, you'll hear it, and then it will get better, but I just want to warn you going in that it is there, and so those of you who are very particular when it comes to what you listen to and what you can and can't handle as far as uh, audio distortion and reverberation and whatnot, I'm warning you, you might not particularly like this one simply because of the audio quality issues, so that's why it's a bonus episode rather than episode 11. If you are willing to put up with the audio distortion, however, I do think this is a good expansion on the previous episode, The Lost Utopia of Socrates. You'll recall in that episode I discussed Socrates' thoughts on the origins of society and how it seems from reading The Republic that he preferred a more primitive, almost anarchic society, as opposed to the gargantuan metropolitan utopia, which is so commonly associated with the Republic itself. So in this recording you're about to hear, we dig into both of those utopias in more detail, focusing on the elements of cultural creation that become necessary to the preservation of the big utopia, which are absent in the little utopia. And so, just a couple announcements before we get into it. I've got a couple of shows lined up for you, ready for release. After this, you'll be hearing Part 2 of The Realm of Isocrates, the series I'm doing with Kevin Cole. And then after that, I'll be releasing the episode on Agrarian Justice by Thomas Paine, which I promised some time ago. And then I've got a very interesting episode in the works regarding the mythic origins of the British Empire. So that's going to be a very fun one. And finally, yes, I am still working on the Political Spectrum show, and I'll get that out as soon as I can. As I said last time, it's a little bit more work than I expected, but nonetheless, I'm learning a lot and enjoying myself while doing so. And now, without further ado, I give you Socratic Statehood, a discussion on the Republic, books two and three. Thank you very much, and enjoy. I suppose we might as well get to it. We uh, let's hop right in. Yeah, we spent <laughs> we spent a long time last time just on book one, 
So we're so we wanted to talk a little bit about the second half of book two. Um, so where and hopefully where we'll get that? to book three as well. What, this is book three, and we definitely uh, so, have to get to book three because that's when he starts talking about the noble lie. So we left off at about three sixty eight a. So this is just after Adamantus um, has talked about. Let's see. Let's oh my see. God, that's how far we got. Yeah. Um, that's not very far. Don't only sh- so he's just now asking Socrates to prove to him that it's actually better to be just than unjust. So we've already heard the story about the ring of Gyges, Gyges' ancestor, um, about how if a human is provided the opportunity to be unjust and know they won't get caught, they will always do that. And so now they're saying, so why shouldn't you do that, Socrates? So that's where we left off. Why is justice good in and of itself? Oh, Jesus. Well, we, we came up with an answer. We came up we with. We kind of did. We came up with. I wasn't totally satisfied with the way that we. Yeah, it's incomplete. Vocalized it. But it was so we came up with. The reason you should be just, even when nobody's looking, is because justice is the glue which binds societies together. And that if you don't behave in a just way, you're not just getting away with something. You're actually destabilizing society itself. You're destabilizing the trust that needs to exist for the society to actually function in its ideal form. That's more or less what we've said, probably in different words. But mm-hmm. And I, I think I'm still satisfied with that so far. So that's where we left yeah. off. I agreed, a generally agreed upon code of behavior. Yeah. For pragmatic purposes, really more than anything else. Yeah. You should follow that all the time. And this is where like the idea of shame, I think, comes from. Because there's this idea that mm. you're probably not going to do the right thing all the time, but you should aim at doing the right thing all the time. That way, when you don't, you feel bad about yeah, it. Yeah. So shame is the animal instinct that directs us towards good behavior. Yeah. It keeps us civilized. I think in keeping with the logic of this yes. text, I mean, yeah. So yeah, I guess let's, let's start with that. What do we think about, what do you guys think about that proximal definition of justice so far? Well, I, I think there's, there's also the, uh, you know, the idea of trust and integrity. Those are two valuable things that uh, acting in a just way uh, allows people to benefit from. Yeah. And, course the opposite are the other side of the scale of trust and integrity is that you know like we said the shame and really like loss of faith of other people in in your own uh, ability you know so like if if people don't trust you they're not going to give you any tasks they're not going to give you their money they're not going to extend you credit Mm -hmm. all those kind of things are a, a result of uh your behavior and you know in the, like the idea of integrity being doing what you say you're going to do uh, <clears throat> could really reflect that i mean certainly that could be just or un- unjust but uh being that uh you have that opportunity to basically do things that are good or perceived to be good and just 
and, and do those things and then actually take, you know, take those out. Because, of course, the mafia does that, too. They, they say they're going to do something and then they do it. And you're like, OK, well, I'm afraid of you because you, you say you're going to kill people and you do. OK, I understand. Right. <laughs> but uh, acting in that just fashion gives people more faith in you. Yeah. It's almost like a kind of social currency that you can accumulate. It's yeah. It's actual social credit, not like the artificial kind that's used politically you know, we used to call that reputation. <laughs> He's a good reputation mm-hmm. and he follows through. And this leads right into what Socrates actually says. So he says that, look, we can't really answer this question about what is justice if we're just talking about one person. We can't talk about the just man. That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about a city. A society. Let's have a society and then take a look at what that mm-hmm. is. And only then can we find justice. And I think that falls in line with this definition we're kind of concocting here, because we're talking about justice being couched in so in a society. Of course. So it only makes sense that we have to talk about a society in order to find justice. Mm-hmm. And to your point, the very first thing he says about the city is, here, I'll just read it. A city, as I believe, comes into being because each of us isn't self-sufficient, but is in need of much. Do you believe there's another beginning to the founding of a city? None at all. So this is it. The reason that there are societies is because I can't do everything. And so we need to be able to trade with one another. And that means we have to trust one another. That right there is the origin of society, according to Socrates. And it makes sense to me. But I think he just uses this as an analogy because he says he would want to look up something big so that we can see better something. So one person alone, we just can see inside maybe like this. Because and after this, he wants to come back. So the aim would be to discern what's uh, in one person, I would suppose. Because I don't know what's in English. It's in 368 D somewhere, I suppose. Where it talks. Little letters and big letters. Right. Yeah. So it says, and uh, after we have looked at this uh, analogy, we come back afterwards. Mm -hmm. Right. So the ultimate goal is individual conduct but the only way that they can figure out what that is going to be is they have to first take it to this large social level to see what would the laws be what would the practices be in the ideal city and then you could just deduce from that that the individual would behave in accordance with those laws it's microcosm macrocosm kind of thing and also, I think you, if 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 there's something like an analogy, there would be in your mind different parts which act like this, different parts of a society. Somebody needs food, and some some parts of the soul does this thing, and some part will do this thing, and so you have afterwards to get these different uh, qualities, like what did you so call them? Temperance, courage, and. Uh, Magnificence and oneness. So these are would be in the end some qualities which you have to reach, right? As uh, so, this would be the the, the soldiers, the, 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 the guardians, which have to reach this part of. Uh, uh, and of course, in the end, there would be the question: uh, if there's an analogy, if you come back to the one person, so there would be one part of your soul which would be the guardian which would be overlooking what you are doing, something like this. 
right if the, if he wants to do if he wants to come back yeah yeah that's true it's a fractal kind of thing the all of the aspects of the city are going to be reflected in each individual and that's where the that's the letters thing you know it's the sentence is the same regardless of what what scale it's in and so all of the things that we're talking about in society are going to reflect or the individual is going to reflect them so when we talk about you know each individual is not self-sufficient and this is the origin of society that's also to say that within ourselves no one aspect of our personality can run roughshod over the others and if it does then we'll probably have some issues we need to have a kind of internal balance so he also gets into it's he doesn't quite get into it yet explicitly but he will as yes yeah, so he I, does. i didn't read to the end so in the end i would suppose he will come back to, mm-hmm. to get this back to, into one person right i hope so, so. we'll see later on Yeah, yeah, because that's certainly that's definitely what he lays out as his goal. Um and so then we just go on this long thing about the city itself which uh should tie back into the individual. Um and it does. So he also says that people are not equal in their ability. Some people are better at this and other people are better at that. And this is why this is where division of labor comes from. This is so this is uh 360 or 370 B. It would be strange by Zeus, I said. I myself also had the thought when you spoke that in the first place each of us is naturally not quite like anyone else, but rather differs in his nature. Different men are apt for the accomplishment of different jobs. Isn't that your opinion? And so they conclude then that basically you should find whatever it is you're good at. and do that and don't screw around with anything else. He's kind of a purist about it though, which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. He's like literally don't learn any other skills other than the one that you're going to make money off of, which is absurd. Yeah, that it's a little too collectivist for me. Well, that's why I think that this book is so much more different from the other ones because um to me that's a logical mistake to be that strict about it. whereas the logic is so clean in a lot of the other dialogues that we've read what is the mistake well i mean because he's such a purist and he says each person should learn a single skill set so that they can have good work and that skill set has to be the only one that they learn because otherwise they won't learn it well enough if they're trying to learn more than one skill but obviously to get by in life you need more than one skill so i don't know if i'm taking him too literally or not but the way he phrases it sounds very literal it just doesn't make any sense it's not realistic let me see if i can find an example in the, um the text yeah because i i think he's um he's just specifically referring to the job that you do not necessarily that's all you do with all of your time he wants he just wants people he doesn't want people to like go into the workforce willy-nilly kind of like we do now and just like oh i guess i'll do this so oh, i guess i'll do that it's like no you should find what you're good at and pursue that art that's a generous interpretation i i don't think i think it's pretty explicit because he talks about how if you're going to do an art well you need to be practiced in it and you also need to have the the time where you're not consumed by other arts so that when 
something, a crucial moment comes up and you need to be, you know, whatever, I don't know, take, pick an example. You need to be present on the job at the time. You don't have other obligations weighing you down. He's just talking about productivity. Oh, wow. That's not what I got out of that at all. So on this basis, each thing becomes more plentiful, finer, and easier. When one man, exempt from all other tasks, does one thing according to nature and at the crucial moment. I think he gets into it more in book three. Yeah, when they talk about the auxiliaries. But the one man, one art thing, I do think that there is a kind of, uh, it is maybe logically shaky. What if you're good at being a jack of all trades? What if that's your thing? What if your thing is knowing a bunch of different stuff, then what? You know, what, what, where does the line of what constitutes an art? Is it one task? Here we go. Because, I mean, what's a carpenter? A carpenter is somebody who's actually mastered a number of different tasks. It's really not just one art, you know? Yes, be, that's kind of what I was getting at. So every art is actually a, an amalgam of them. So I don't really, you know, to skip ahead a little bit, in book three, he talks a lot about the um, the soldier class and how like you know the soldiers should be just sh- soldiers that's all they should be and they should be really good at soldiering and it's like okay but th- that class of soldier is actually a bunch of different tasks like maybe someone's really good with the spear but maybe he's not that good with an axe or a sword you know so it's it's different they're all different tasks included in each art so I. Yeah, it that's what I wrote. only necessary afterwards, after this. At first, there's something like this little city. And afterwards, uh, they, the city grows bigger and bigger. And there comes, uh, and they want more than only live with their clothes and shoes. And they want some, have to have some luxury. And they mm-hmm. will get problems with, because with other, the other cities around. So they will, they will start a war. If they yeah. stayed in their little city, there would be no war. But afterwards, if the war comes, then you have to start to build an army. Yeah. 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 This is the birth of empire. I, I think there's a couple things there. You know, the idea of the, <clears throat> the luxury items and stuff like that, that suggests like a, a level, a higher level of quality and to some degree, uh, a level of standard that like, you know, like, for example, carpenters perform or, or you know, so like who has the best carpentry or who is the best soldier, those type of things, you know, recognizing that as really higher quality and a, a, a better level of, uh, of product or service. I'm not sure exactly because it's been a while since I read that, if there is that discussion about that particular area, but it does suggest that if you've got a bigger population, you got more people that are, in a particular area that are defining that more precise quality that is, you know, the art, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think and, they actually... and then the suggestion that uh, you need soldiers because you need more land and that means it has to be a war. That's a bit of a jump for me because I do feel like, you know, here, here we go again with like Darwinism versus the alternative which is, uh, you know, the strongest they're going to survive versus if we collaborate, we can get better. I, I think th- that discussion, that it doesn't get, that doesn't ha- get had, you know, or mm-hmm. does it? 
You feel like that's, I mean, he's made a presumption that we need soldiers because of these, you know, it's like that logical step to we need soldiers. I'm just not sure. I'm, uh, I know. I agree with you because he, he kind of sneaks something in where he says that, yeah, we're going to need soldiers to defend our goods and our supply lines and stuff. But he also says like, and obviously we're also going to need them to go out and steal other people's stuff. Right. And Glaucon or Adamantus, whoever it is, is just like, yeah, of course. And then they just move on. You know, so <laughs> this is why I think that this is the beginning in their system. This is the origin of empire, you know, just, and it comes, it's couched in this idea of luxury. And I don't know if Plato does this on purpose or what, but it's like, right. When someone brings up, we need luxury immediately. Everyone's like, Oh yeah, we have to go take it from other people. Right. And everyone just nods and then they move on. And it's just, that's totally taken for granted. I don't know if that's like him slyly criticizing something or not even realizing it himself. Uh, Yeah. But that's, that's it is that people see luxury, they see others with it, they want it, and the impulse is to take it. And that's where the war comes in. Because it's not so, they don't talk about fighting for survival. If there's something that has more value, then that means there's more money for it. So like there can be the win-win circumstance that like your land is now worth twice as much as it is as farmland if we build a factory there. So let's I'll double the amount of money that you think that farmland is worth to build a factory there, you know, because I, I know I can make more money with the factory than, you know, 10 times more with the factory than you can with your farm. Right. But paying you double for your farmland still provides me with that opportunity. And I don't need soldiers to do that. You walk away happy. I walk away happy. As the Greeks did uh, merchandise by ships, so they needed sailors. And of course, if they go by ships in this region, and so the, the, um, the experience they make, of course, they will start to uh, appear pirates who just rob the ships. And this, uh, so, and there's also many stories about the pirates in the Mediterranean. So this would be the experience uh, for the Greeks, of course. Well, but, you know, pirates are a result of kind of inequities, too, though, in uh, injustice, right? Because for the most part, people that are, uh, uh, you know, that have to go to uh, criminal acts are, are usually desperate, right? I mean, people that are violent are doing that because they don't have any other creative thoughts about how they can, you know, sustain themselves, so to some degree, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you start down that thing, we need soldiers to protect our stuff from other people. Well, that generally suggests those other people are desperate. <laughs> and, and maybe right. there's some inequity that we should address. But again, I, I think that's one of these areas that isn't talked about. Uh, you know, it's like you said, it just, I, it just uh, we need soldiers. Yeah, of course, we need soldiers. But also, it could just be more easy for the pirates to get the stuff. Right. Well, it, so either way, it's injustice. So in the first case, if if it's the result of some sort of inequity and these the pirates that we're positing are desperate, then that's an injustice being done on behalf of their community, who there are these people who maybe they're just not intelligent enough to come up with any creative kind of 
endeavor. Uh, and so there's somebody not taking care of these people. They're not getting what they need. So that's injustice on the one hand, because they're not maintaining the social fabric. But then on the other hand, in Ludger's example, it could be that these pirates are just really greedy people and they want more than their share of what their the community has given them. And so then they're being unjust. But either way, yeah. it's the result of some sort of injustice, piracy. And so he does he does talk about trade. So he does acknowledge that before before we get into the luxury thing, in his simple civilization, there is trade. So this this makes this raises the question of what is being traded. Probably just subsistence he things. Doesn't mention, doesn't he? Um, I kind of farm and craft material. So basic stuff, not like jewelry necessarily. I suppose though, and this is what he doesn't mention, is that if you have traders, you kind of maybe you don't need a military, but you need some sort of protection, security force. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Guardians. That, and that's what he starts getting. Well, into. nobody doesn't talk about I'm talking before we even get into the luxury. Oh, right. So we're still just talking about his like primitive utopia. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't mention any kind of guards, which I think is interesting. Well, I think that his this primitive utopia is operating under the assumption that everybody around it is the same kind of society. Mm. That that's a good but that's a leap because that's not going to happen. Well, he doesn't clarify in there, which is why I think that we have to take it as sort of just a mental construct that he's created where it stands alone. Yeah. It doesn't have neighbors. It's just an idea. So to get, yeah. So with the, to close out the piracy thing, he basically says that surplus should be traded. It shouldn't be hoarded up by anybody. The surplus should be spread around. And perhaps this is a reason why maybe you don't need so much of a security force because if my my town is really good at growing food, and then both of you guys each have your own town, if I'm giving you my extra food, then you're not going to want to go to war with me and disrupt that. So, no. I, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, Tom Woods has a thing about the Old West, and he talks about, uh, you know, like the perception of the Old West versus the reality and like how a, a good sheriff actually like enforces the law in in, in uh, allows justice to happen and by kind of creating the circumstance that he is proactively out there talking to people and making sure that inequities are not happening. That's how the, like the sheriff doesn't even have to carry a gun because yeah. he's already basically made sure that, that like, uh, you know, justice is being done automatically. Like preemptively. And in, in, in by, yeah being proactive about asking people and basically making sure that uh, nobody is getting stolen from or nobody is feeling like they're uh, like, you know, in a win-lose situation where somebody is taking from them, you don't have problems. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a really good, that's a really good point. I think that he would, Socrates would probably be in favor of something like that before we enter the world of luxury just somebody going around and making sure that justice is being maintained, whatever that is, because if it's not, then, then you get your pirates. And yeah. once you have your pirates, well, now we need to hire some extra security forces. Now it's not enough to just have them guarding the merchants. Now they, we got to get them a ship to go and get the pirates. And then. Right. And, go, and to some degree, that is the way that government works. They have to have the pirates to basically justify the population having the government. 
you know. And so yeah. to some degree, the pirates and the, the, the justice keepers are in conjunction with each other. They're in collaboration. They're colluding with each other. Right. And the ironic thing is that that's not in the interest of that sheriff, like the just sheriff, because if he is indeed just, and we're going off of our definition of that being the social fabric, then as the size of the government grows in response to the pirate threat, then justice at home will cease to be done because you're actually going to be in the, the bigger government will, by definition, be impeding people's ability to do the job they're supposed to do for the betterance of society. So this whole yeah. one man, one job thing is going to be curtailed because now every man has two jobs or to farm or every a supervisor. Every person is now because he, he mentions like there's farming and there's craftsmanship, but there's also the art of wage earning. So like just unskilled labor. Mm -hmm. Well, now every person who's an artisan also has to be a wage earner because now they have to pay taxes on that big, you know, anti-pirate fleet. So now we're breaking our own law and having every man do two arts. So right there, you know, we can't have a military buildup if we want to maintain our justice. So there. So you're disputing uh, Socrates? Maybe. It kind of sounds like a contradiction. It might be. It might be. Yeah, I think at, at, this, at this point, it, it's not addressed. He just says that we need soldiers because these things and these things and everybody agrees. Yeah. He says that. Isn't that right? Yes. Isn't that what you think? Yes. Of course. Yes. That sounds right to me, Socrates. Most certainly. <laughs> it seems so to me. I'm yeah. trying to, I, now I want to find the exact passage where he starts talking about why you need guardians. It's, yeah, I'll flip to it. So he, it's, it comes after, he says, first of all, the, his ideal city has no military at all. Everyone just hangs out. You know, they do their job for, well, the sun's up. And then they all lie around and they eat nice foods and they sing songs and they dance and they play games. Here and, we go. Um, it's a, you know, they will drink wine crowned with wreaths, sing of the gods, keeping an eye out against poverty or war. So they just, it's perfect. Everything's nice. Uh, peace and health. There's no slavery. There's no propaganda. There's no eugenics, but there's also no progress. It just maintains stasis. And that's when Glaucon says, like, that's that's no fun. We want a city that's progressive. You know, we want to be bringing in more material. We want to grow. And so that's when he starts describing the feverish city. And that's when the soldiers show up. He says, OK, if you want a big city, Glaucon, you can have one, but you're going to have to be imperial. That comes with the territory of being expansive, oh. he says. Oh, I found it. Um, and the land, of course, which was then sufficient for feeding the men who were then, will now be small, although it was sufficient. Or how should we say it? We must cut off a piece of our neighbor's land if we are going to have sufficient for pasture and tillage. And they in turn from ours, if they let themselves go to the unlimited acquisition of money, overstepping the boundary of the necessary. So, so maybe this is also a key passage to determining what are Socrates' opinions on what he's describing? This sounds like um, he's going to describe a city he's not so fond of next. And 
because it has reached beyond the bounds of what it really needs, that's why it's going to need a military. So he immediately says, if you want luxuries, you will have to be an empire. And so now we start describing, I know you guys kind of mentioned that already, but I just like that. I found the passage. I like that. He says unlimited acquisition of money overstepping the boundary of necessity. That's basically a long winded version of the word greed. So he's basically saying that greed is the origin of war. And, and that's he, why the city needs guardians. And he doesn't seem to like that. Yeah. He, and I, I'm trying to find it, but at some point he says, like, he kind of, he brings up, he's like, you know, we had a good city a few minutes ago. Like, you know, he's like, this is not ideal. He says that this is not ideal. He doesn't like that they have to be militaristic. So he wants to go back to the other one that's not progressive. That's everyone just hangs out. The, uh, the, but the is, is, of empires. But again, is is that true? I mean, is it is it true that if people are artisans and uh, they're providing enough and they have their own individual art that they provide stuff that they're just going to be, they're not going to try and improve their craft. They're not going to try and, and provide a, a niche market, those kind of things. I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, I mean, when he's when he's suggesting that like people, because they have their own particular thing that they do, that they'll just be lazy because they, you know, they're they're making enough for everybody else, and that there's just not that desire to, you know, like constantly improve the art of what it is they do. Um, well, when he's talking about his primitive utopia, he does say that they will be craftspeople and that they will um, put their heart and soul into doing their craft well. So are you saying that in order to improve a craft, you have to become a big, luxurious city? No, I'm just saying that the assumption that people will just be laying around like doing nothing because there's abundance and, and they don't have to really uh isn't that an assumption that well yeah he's assuming that they won't get greedy when he's describing his primitive utopia the assumption is that they won't get greedy because they'll be content but then Mm. glaucon it was glaucon right who was like well but i'm feeling greedy like i'm a human being and human beings are what you're describing being in this primitive pastoral utopia and i feel kind of greedy yeah. yeah, well, that's yeah. So, but, but kind of, again, there's like a way he picks to the hole that. in it right away. Yeah, like, Sorry. like if I if I'm if I do want more, but I understand that to to get more, I also have to give more. You know, like I, I've got, you know, like if I want twice the demand of uh, you know my business, then I've got to market it to more people. I've got to give other people incentive to market and come to my business. So maybe I discount my prices or, or, you know, do advertising, but I understand that, you know, there's, there's like a win-win somebody else has to uh, get paid to do something to give me more money. And so as long as I understand that, then things do improve. But if I'm, you know, and this is where I think that, you know, like, uh, like, you know, being able to like understand like a win-win scenario versus uh, I need that other person's land. If I'm going to expand my business, I've got to have soldiers to go over there and take it from them. I think it's a sign of the times that he makes the, that leap. I think that that's, that is a, a description of how things had been done up until then. 
he's, he's not just saying that ideally this is how things would be. He's saying, this is how things are. So maybe he just never made it that far in his little fantasy, or maybe he's right. And maybe there is a certain amount of, for instance, okay. So um, I was listening to the most recent episode of online great books. I don't know if you guys are into that show at all, but the most recent one is about economics and um, they were talking about, imagine this is think about the society we live in now where we have a mind boggling access to luxury and complex machinery and energy that we burn willy nilly, just like crazy. And do we really need any of that stuff? No, it's greed. And the only way that our system continues to operate the way it does is if we continue to use slave labor and we continue to gather resources in an unsustainable way. But but isn't that as a result of a a lack of awareness of like the potential of the people, you know, because if you look at humans as resources that can only like pound widgets into, you know, something else, and you've got to train them to do whatever that, that thing is, but now I can do it with a robot instead of a person. And so I don't need that person. That's where the, like the, that's where the, you know, like, okay, so what can we do with that person? Question is, is that isn't being answered. Yesterday, we, we were at a family gathering and someone mentioned pickles. We can grow a bunch of cucumbers and then we can slice them into fancy little spears and then make a brine and then jar them all up and season them the way we like and da, 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 and do the whole process, and, which is time consuming. We had to grow the food, then we had to mix our labor with it, etc. Then we have to actually wait for the things to to uh, to pickle to get to a certain level of quality, and then I can go you know around and talking to my neighbors and say, "Hey, do you want to buy a jar of pickles? I'm going to charge you ten dollars because they're my personal artisan pickles." And while that sounds very nice, the fact is is that that same person, if they want pickles, they can hop in their car drive to Walmart and get a gigantic tub of pickles that they don't have to do any work for, for two bucks. And so this is the greed thing. I think it's like, all right, Glaucon, if you want to have in Socrates's first city, it's like we make our own pickles and it's a whole process and we have a culture surrounding it. And, but we only have so many pickles. You can, you know, everyone only gets one because that's all we got. You have to wait till the next batch. Glaucon is saying, well, I want a whole jar of pickles right now. And so Socrates is like, okay, really this is an issue of mass production. So, okay, you want industrial size pickles, pickle jars? All right. But to do that, we're going to have to go out and take shit. And it's like this, we still yeah. operate on this model that, that Socrates pointed out. It's like, you want an iPhone? Okay, well, unless it's going to be $5,000, then you're going to have to go to China and take their stuff. That's either that or your iPhone is going to be really, really, really expensive. And most people. Well, but, but, but isn't that it goes back to that, like just versus unjust? Because like if the inequities are such that you've got to like 
force people to do things that they don't want. That's that's injustice. Mm-hmm. That's and, and not so, that's not how they define injustice. Socrates doesn't believe that's injustice. He believes it's perfectly just to have slaves. Well, he hasn't said that. Well, he has. He mentions slavery as in all of his dialogues and it never once criticizes the institution of it or even questions it. In fact, there are several places in previous dialogues where he says it is just for people to know their place and for slaves to be slaves and owners to be owners. So I would say that that aspect of justice is not in his definition. Yeah. yeah and I think that's, that's one of those areas of, you know, like, a is it an assumption or is it a, uh, kind of uh, just the explanation of the way things are as they are in his particular time, or is it just uh, you know kind of a, a literary ex- explanation of like, like how the 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 uh, you know the ruling class essentially these things as they are or like justifies this as just being human nature. Yeah, well, I think that we can even give the most charitable reading in that regard. And give Plato all the benefit of the doubt. Still, I think yep. it's even according to his own logic. I think there's a huge hole right here. Yeah, I think he's overlooking. Something. I think that in the in his own system, he's made a drastic mistake in that this whole city that we're about to construct, which is going to be the basis of how we determine what individual justice is, is founded on injustice. It's founded on this idea that contradicts what we just figured out about justice. Because if you need to have a force that is going to, first of all, defend from other armies because you're screwing with people and then it's going to go out and take other people's stuff. It's like that's violating the social fabric because, A, you're causing strife between nations. So that's not very sociable. And also you're putting your people in danger. That's not very sociable either. And how is all this stuff being paid for? can't have one man, one job anymore, because now every man is also a wage earner, including his art. So, I mean, these are three, I think, holes. There's, yeah, he's overlooking some things for sure. So the foundation is, I think, busted in setting up this big empire. And maybe that was intentional on his part. Some people believe that Plato is like a literary genius and everything he did was intentional. Um, So maybe he is trying to say without saying that it's impossible to have a city like that and have it be just. You can't have a just empire could be what he's saying. Or maybe he is um, just simpler than we think. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. I don't know, but he's teaching me. I, I do think that the first society he described, I do think that was just, that sounded just, that sounded pretty just to me. Yeah. It's, it's, but, but, you're right. But, uh, Glaucon, my, but my TV. Glaucon is a very, he sounds like a jerk because he's like, oh, come on, man. But he's being realistic. Well, and he's playing the literary part of the human nature. This is mm-hmm. exactly what anyone would say. Right. Yeah. We'll have a good four generations where everyone's content. And then someone's going to get born and say, you know, I need more shiny things in my life. Why? Do, how come we never go to that land over there and use it? There are only a few people on it. We could get rid of them real quick. And then, well, here we are to the big empire. You know, I wish that he had wrote, written this whole book about just how to write a noble lie to maintain that first society. Yeah. But he but the implication is it wouldn't need it. 
And I'm not sure if he's right about that. I don't know. Because he doesn't say, you know, you need the noble lie to maintain the huge empire and get everybody to stay in their place and do their job. But I'm jumping ahead now. We don't need to get into it. Yeah, we should probably move forward. Do you guys have anything more to say on the origin of the society or the origin of the empire before moving on to the next um, the next question. If you want to maintain this idea of an analogy, you would have to say that the second city would be a second soul, which you mean, so a second individual person. If one city would be an analogy for one person, of course, if there appear other cities, you would meet some other individuals, which mm-hmm. uh, would uh, could produce problems. So this un- other individual have something... Uh, I would like to have me. I don't, I didn't, I wouldn't have noticed that the other person wouldn't have appeared. So now I notice there are other things in the world, which maybe I would also have to like, like to have. Uh, Something like a shift yeah. energy is existing and you would have to, uh, so get to some ideas to maintain the peace between the two persons. I just want to mention, so if you maintain this idea in your back, you would have to, find out uh, now what's the analogy here so you have two cities now or there may be more cities because in this time there was a different many cities in the greek so-called uh, ethan system of cities so is it inevitable that the second city will try to subsume the first though no the question is if you want to try to make this analogy what would be the, the first you so you you would suppose there is one individual all alone before you meet another individual. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is already some sort of like, uh, this is not possible, of course, but this would be the, the construction up to come because there was only the individual which would have a look onto the world. And, uh, but of course, afterwards, I thought, okay, this individual has to be, has to develop himself some in some form, already in communication with other people. So this would be already, but here, here you have to see what's what's the possible comparison between the world and the city. If this was the idea in the beginning, so now you have many cities. So at some point there would uh, appear this something like a war between two cities, which would be two souls, you could suppose. And so at some at some point you have to. Uh, but we will see in the later what would be the plan of. I didn't have not read ready to the end, so. Mm. Yeah, that's a. I'm happy you brought that up to see if he's actually going to compare these two things, or if he's just going to kind of forget about the first one. Yeah, I'm wondering that too. This dialogue also seems less organized to me. Like the thoughts are sort of. He jumps back and forth sometimes between ideas in a way that feels really more erratic than I'm used to with him. He's usually so methodical. Socrates as a character, I mean, in his narration is usually very methodical and, and I can, you know, even if it's too complex for me to follow it at first, by the time I get to the end, then I'm able to be able to look back at the progression of all the ideas and they seem to come in order and make sense. But in this one, it feels like it's organized differently. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the stylistic differences between the different dialogues. So I know that's maybe not what you guys want to talk about. <laughs> well, so he does. Of course, we do not read the original, so it's difficult sometimes. 
that's true to us always important to keep in mind yeah well he's not because he has this direct direction from the the little city goes to the big city and then there comes his uh, soldiers which have to have some sort of qualities mm-hmm. uh, so which in the end i think these qualities will be combined with the soul i suppose mm-hmm. the quality That's that the soul has to have to to defend them, uh, itself yeah he believes that uh, he you know the old nature versus nurture thing Judging from this text, he seems to be like dead center on it. Mm-hmm. You know, like people have certain natural proclivities, but also mm-hmm. education is a huge part of it. But education shouldn't. I, I actually appreciate this part of um, his weird authoritarian empire here because <laughs> he makes it very clear over and over again in book two and book three that the point of education isn't to reshape people into something that you want them to be so much as it is to find out where their talents are and then to just lean into that. And so we want to find the people who are going to be the best soldiers and then train them according to that talent, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, I guess if you're going to do it, you might as well do it that way. But he does say that soldiery, just like farming or uh, carpentry or shoemaking or whatever it's it's an art and therefore should not be something left up to like a militia it shouldn't be you know the farmer with his gun is going to be ready to fight off the invading force which is kind of like the american ideal he does not like that because yeah, right. one man one art right if you're going to be good at war then you have to train all the time and you can't train all the time if you're farming all the time Interesting. I mean, it doesn't, it's not illogical, but it might. I think I'm taking this personally because I have like 15 different crafts. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm like, I swear I can be good at all of them. Maybe I can't though. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that. The whole one man, one job thing. I, I get what he's saying, but I just don't know if it's really true in the real world not there's no manager there's no good manager of a business anywhere that would be that strict about that if you want to look at it that way yeah and i think there's yeah and then there's a lot of things about like people's experiences that they they don't necessarily know what they want i know from my own experience in my life i've gone through different things where i thought i wanted that did that absolutely out to be what I thought it was, so I need to go on to something else. And even though it had some things that I was good at, there were some other things that I didn't like. And so then I had to switch those things. And, and to some degree, yeah, this idea that everybody has to have one particular thing that they do really well, yeah, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I'm not convinced. Yeah, and over specialization leads to myopia. You know, like you only see the one little narrow aspect of reality that you work in. So you don't have a big picture sense of the world. And also that could even be a hindrance to your own craft. Like if you're working on a problem, sometimes you need to go and do something totally different and be like, oh, oh, it's like this thing. You know, it's sometimes you find that analogical uh, solution in another craft. And um, he doesn't seem to acknowledge that at all. 
it's just taken for granted. One man, one job. Therefore, yeah, we need yeah. a standing army. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't like that. But, but if you're going to have an empire, you do need a standing army because empires are definitionally militaristic because you're stealing shit and you're subjugating people. So I agree with him there. I just don't think it's good. And I don't know that he thinks it's good either. It's hard to tell what he thinks for sure. Yeah. Because, and that's the other thing about the character of Socrates um, is that he isn't ever, he refuses actually to make a, a truth claim because in the very first, in some of the very first dialogues, this is made clear in when he says, I don't know anything. The whole body of Plato's work opens with the introduction of the character of Socrates claiming to know nothing. And to me, if it is true that Plato was a very good writer, this is a very important thing for us to remember as we go through his entire body of work is that we can't take everything he says at face value. We can't assume that this is what he believes or this is what he really means because he is his epistemology is that he is a mortal man and he can't know anything for sure. Yeah, he's just doing his best with what he's got. So I don't know what his stance on this empire is, but he does I do there are some subtle hints that he would prefer the so. non he he wants the little city state so. that's you know it's got some trade and it's nice but not empire because mm-hmm. he keeps slipping these little things in here socrates is a simple man and he seems to want it's maybe i'm bring, being bringing my modern sensibility into it but it seems almost as if he's trying to prod glaucon into finally saying all right never mind <laughs> i don't want this anymore because he keeps saying things maybe. like well, we're going to need our soldiers to do nothing but war and we're going to need them to be like dogs and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, is he just saying this to be like, to try to get Glaucon to see that maybe this isn't so good, you know? Because he says, basically, he says that uh, the soldier should be trained from childhood to view all of the citizens with love and uh, compassion and then with an equal amount of passion, view all outsiders as disgusting subhumans. <laughs> and it's like, okay, Glaucon, like this is what you need for your empire. Is this really what? Because you... it's true. If you're going to have an empire, you need to view the other as scum or animals or children that need saving. You know, we've heard all this. It still goes on. And he's kind of just laying it out. If you want an empire, those aren't really people out there. There's something else. They're animals. And we need to go and tame them. And they don't know how to use their stuff. So we should use it. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the, uh, the world out there, the gangs and the cartels and so forth, they are practicing that very, you know, so to some degree, describing what he's describing is kind of reality but is it the reality that they've just been taught or is it uh is it just you know again we are we manifesting what we what we're saying is logical or are we actually doing what's logical and in this case i think it well that's the way it is we just got to do it that way right and it the reason we have to do it that way, even though no one really acknowledges it, is because our imperial 
society is built on certain things, namely this idea of greed that he's introduced, that we, we deserve to have really nice things for really cheap. And if that means that we need to exploit other people and destroy, you know, whatever their resource uh, basin is, well, that's fine. They're not really people anyway. <laughs> They're over there, man. I want my iPhone and my pickles. So I don't care. You know, why? It, it's like we were just saying this yesterday. Prices right now, people bitch about how expensive everything is. And true. And it's because the money itself is inflated. But at the same time, the actual prices of the materials we buy are artificially deflated in a way because we're actually paying less for the finished product than we would pay for the materials themselves. So cucumbers, uh, land to farm them on, actual mason jars, vinegar, blah, 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 to make brine, that's going to cost me $15, $20 to get the materials, whereas the jar of pickles itself is like two bucks. So it's crazy. The materials are more than the finished product. So it's like, it's almost as if labor removes cost, which doesn't, or removes uh, price, which doesn't make any sense. But this is where we live. Because people aren't being compensated fairly. I mean, we don't see that in America. People complain about, oh, the minimum wage is too low. We need to have a $15 minimum wage. And it's like, do you know how fucking spoiled you are that you're getting paid more than 15 cents a day? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that kind of goes back to that, the, the, the ring of gaijis and this idea that well, if you could create that, people would just do the, they would do the evil thing because that wouldn't be the thing. And, and you know, I do, I guess I want to ask that question when it comes to the Lord of the Rings and, and the idea of that ring. And when you stick it on and just like the evil knows you're there, you know, but everyone else is invisible. Oh, J.R.R. Tolkien, oh, yeah. Tolkien absolutely got that from Plato. There's no doubt in my mind. He was a professor. He was a well-read man. There's no doubt in my mind that they're related. I know the first time I read this, I was like telling everybody. I was like, guys, <laughs> holy shit, you've got to check this out, man. It's, it's true. And this is about two years ago. And I remember it every time we would go out or hang out with friends or something. This is the story that he told Oh, oh yeah. All of us was like, did you know? And like, yeah, you told me already. So, I, I mean, but with that, with that in mind, then, you know, essentially it is this idea that you can do like the you know, the way that the system is working is one in which it, it does create that ring of power that allows the bad guys to do what they want because yeah. they're invisible to people's awareness. It's all, The whole thing is invisible. That's a really good point. And not only that, but you, we are all wearing the ring of power and what's invisible is the injustice that's being done. We cannot see how our own lifestyles affect other people because those people are literally on the other side of the planet. Yeah. So the laborers are invisible to us. The process of actually putting this stuff together is invisible to us. Whatever sort of environmental blah, blah, blah problems are being caused, that's invisible to us. And us as consumers, we're invisible too, because we are in a sea of anonymous consumers. I have an iPhone. Everyone's got an iPhone. You were practically invisible. Because we all blend into the landscape Just of consumers. Just another grain of rice. Exactly. So this, this I'm really happy you brought that ring back up because that's totally it. Where our injustice so, so. is being done in under a cloak of invisibility. 
Yeah. And so to some degree, it is like a choice that we all make. We can all put the ring on and we can get our nice luxury items for super cheap. And yeah, as long as we know, or as long as we can just say, oh, well, we, you know, we're getting screwed on this thing, but hey, we'll screw those people because, you know. Amazon Prime is the modern ring of power. Because yeah. you're not accountable. You're not accountable to those people. You just benefit. That's all. Jeez. But because of that situation, we're all kind of in this thing where, you know, we're all getting screwed because everybody is kind of specialized in their own particular area. We don't see what, how it affects anything else. And because of that, we, we get what we get. And it's fundamentally unjust because it destabilizes the social fabric. Is it, do you really think it's, uh, conducive to the social interests of Americans in the long run to destabilize the workforce of China? You know, like, don't you think that might blow back at some point? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or how about Middle Eastern oil? Like, I like to drive my car. Okay. But do you think maybe stealing their resources is not going to affect you someday? Like, maybe your kid gets shot in the war to take the oil or something or whatever. I mean, Jesus. So it seems that it all this luxurious imperial stuff really disrupts the social fabric, which I think Socrates says at the beginning is the foundation of what justice is. Man, the more we talk about it, the more I'm wondering if this is actually a veiled criticism of imperialism. God, I hope so. I know you hope so. <laughs> Come on, Socrates. I know, you, know you I love hope you. so. <laughs> Even if it's by accident, he's doing a great job of pointing out all the fundamental flaws with imperialism. So this problem uh, appears with this, uh, when it comes to these philosophical dogs, yes? There's mm-hmm. the Guardian, and the problem is that now you have some sort of not oneness in the Guardian, because he has to be friendly with the own and uh, fight against the other one. So there's a problem. And now he comes up with this dog, which supposedly has some of these characteristics that are needed, because the dog is friendly uh, to the own family and uh, also not so friendly to strangers which come the way. Mm-hmm. So in this, because he comes back to the question of justice in this, this is, uh, 375 somewhere, so there's this problem that you have this you have to be justice to their own people and unjustice to the other people, supposedly. So and the, then there comes a dog which, as an example, has these qualities, and so this dog is called philosophical. It's a philo- philosophical dog, and so you have the idea that okay, then our guardians have also be have also to be philosophical guardians, and now comes the question: How do you educate? And after this. There comes the problem of the education of the guardians, and uh, then follows all this description, which you shouldn't tell the guardians, uh, so that they don't get confused with with their minds, but <laughs> stick to their task. Yeah, there's a, there's a particular uh, part of the book that I think says this. You know, it's he's talking about temperance. Temperance is not, as we might expect, the peculiar virtue of the lowest order of the, in the state. As self-mastery, it means the sub- subordination of the lower elements to the higher. But government must be 
with the willing consent of the governed, and the temperance will include the unanimous agreement of all classes as to who should rule and who should obey. It is consequentially like a harmony pervading, pervading and uh, uniting all parts of the whole, a principal solidarity in the laws which stress the harmonious union of different and, and complementary elements. This virtue overshadows even justice. That's in the uh, the virtues of the state in book two. Okay. I think chapter eight. Because I, I think that's that part where they're talking about like what they got to teach, you know, the soldiers. So we, yeah. we got to teach them stories that are going to do the things we want them to do, not, not the stories that are going to lead them down to evil. And, and, you know, he was kind of justifying propaganda to some degree, you know, by our censorship, essentially saying these are the stories that we need to tell them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, we must but, supervise but, the makers of tales. Yeah, he, want, he wants to be sure that, first of all, he says that we can all acknowledge that children are malleable. That's when people are at their most malleable. And so we need to get them when they're young. And we only tell them stories that uh, represent the heroes as actually being heroic. So like the Iliad is not a great story because remember when Zeus gets, he is drugged or whatever and falls asleep on the mountain and him and Hera have adult time together. And uh, that winds up costing Zeus like his interests in the war for a minute. Mm -hmm. So that's, the king of gods being incompetent, being uh, lustful, being, I mean, all of the bad things. So you're not going to tell this story to people that you want to be upright and noble and to turn down temptation and all this stuff, you know, you can't tell them that story. And so he says, we're going to have to delete that stuff and uh, portray the gods and heroes as noble, essentially. And uh, never glorify any evil or any vice or anything of that sort. We can't have the stories of all the gods fighting with each other. They should always be in harmony. So he really wants to give these people a simplistic worldview. The soldiers. They need to look at the world in very black and white terms. Good guys, bad guys. Which, you know, if you're going to have an empire, I guess you kind of do need to do that. I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's probably bad and unjust, but he's not wrong. I mean, again, we are still living in that world right now where the military, you know, that's the enemy. This is the people, this is us and that's them. And if you really start to think about how it's really more gray than that, then you might become a conscientious objector or something like that. We don't want that. Yeah, I, can, I, I got a personal story with that one. I was reading uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, Perestroika book mm-hmm. in my tank. And <laughs> <laughs> our uh, company XO came up and he, he saw the title of the book and he's like, what the hell are you doing reading that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that could cause some issues. <laughs> yeah. God. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Yeah, you can't be doing it. You can't humanize them. 
because then you're going to disrupt the interests of the empire because we need their stuff. We need their, we need to be positioned here and here because it's a grand chessboard and blah, blah, blah. Geopolitical locations and strategies. You can't choke points. Choke points. Thank, thank you. That's what I was trying to come up with. So let's see. Uh, he assumes that God must be good. And it's on this basis that all these myths are supposed to be con- concocted. God is good. God is not the author of evil. God is only the source of goodness in the world. And why? 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 That you're just, he just says that. You know, he just claims God is good. Why? What makes you say that? Um, he, no, he's saying God has to be good. For the purposes of the propaganda? Yeah, he's not oh, saying yeah. that God is good. He's no, saying I know. God has to be good. For the purpose, for political he, purposes. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think he believes in God. I don't think he believes in the, the Greek gods. He certainly doesn't seem to give a in. shit about Zeus. But he's he's literally canning Zeus's stories. He's, he's like, "Yes, one sucks." He like, yeah, he doesn't <laughs> like any of them. He doesn't like the Greek gods at all. In fact, I think there is a line in there. I'm sorry, guys, I don't remember which one it is, but I think there's a line in there where he, where he makes it quite clear that he thinks the Greek gods just suck. I so Glaucon I wouldn't say that he, maybe they don't exist. We suppose as a possibility. I think Glaucon says it before it makes his. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, he does. Yeah, that's earlier. That's uh, Glaucon says something. This is when he's talking about injustice being to the advantage of the individual. He says, like, maybe or so, maybe they don't exist. Right. Maybe they're. Of course, he's the Advocatus Diaboli, so he can say this maybe. (laughs) Exactly. Right. He didn't mean it. (laughs) And Socrates is kind of careful, too. He says, he doesn't, I think you're right. At some point, he does criticize the gods themselves. But but mostly, mostly what he does is say, well, surely Homer and Hesiod made a mistake when they said Zeus did this foolish thing. So he kind of blames it on the poets. It's like, we know Zeus wouldn't do this because he's God and God is good. So it must be the, the poets or the prophets who are in error mm-hmm. when they tell these stories. Yeah. And so we need to monitor the storytellers mm-hmm. and have a committee for cultural creation mm-hmm. and approve the myths that we tell to the kids so we can re- rear them in the proper fashion. Mm-hmm. So I have this, uh, this other... Masters like shoemakers, they have to be one. They cannot be different. So, of course, God himself has to be also only one, and he cannot be evil and good at the same time. Mm-hmm. He cannot right. change. And the oneness of perfection also means that, as he says, God doesn't go around in disguise, because that would mean the perfect becoming imperfect. Well, that just completely changes the nature of Zeus as a character in general. Everything Zeus does is in disguise. Half of the stories about Zeus, he changes into some sort of animal to in order to rape somebody. Yeah, right. And Socrates says that wouldn't happen. So he clearly doesn't give a shit about the Greek gods. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Gods, magicians, which are not really, really gods. Mm-hmm. They're demons. <laughs> he really was the first Christian. Yeah, I mean, kind of. God is not a... God does not... Uh, well, it's the de- in Christianity, it's the devil who assumes pleasing shapes, right? The devil appears as a beautiful woman mm-hmm. or a goat or something. But God just, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, Mephistopheles and Baphomet and all that good stuff. I just thought it was funny because the goat is a pleasing shape. Sure. Just... <laughs> sure. 
Ever had a euro? Anyway, um, uh, God doesn't do that. I mean, in the Old Testament, he does, but we'll forget about that for now and forget about Jesus too. Um, God is just this perfect entity, right? In Christianity. And mm-hmm. uh, Plato, Plato deuces on our buddy Proteus. Remember Proteus? How excited we were about him when we read the, Ili- or the, the Odyssey talking about drugs. Proteus was oh, the yeah. fish man that uh, Odysseus wrestles. Mm-hmm. And Socrates says, uh, obviously, Proteus is not real or he's not a god or something because all he does is transform. Mm-hmm. And so why would a god do that? He says that, uh, nor should the mothers in their turn be convinced by these things and frighten the children with tales badly told that certain gods go around nights looking all like other sort all like sorts of strangers, lest they slander the gods while at the same time making the children more cowardly. In other words, no boogeyman, mm. no monsters under the bed. We can't have that because it makes kids weak. But He's so wrong about that. That doesn't make any sense. Kids needs to be exposed to scary things. There are monsters in the world. Yeah. Yeah. You got to rise to the occasion. Don't, don't hide hide it from them yeah no way see i just think he's wrong on that point he's just wrong that doesn't even serve the purposes this just of the goes empire. to show how little time he spent at home with his kids <laughs> the funny thing is is he was a soldier so you would think he would kind of have a better sense of this kind of thing sounds like he spent most of his time as a soldier standing around in fields daydreaming Whoa. No, no, there is a story in there about how he dragged somebody off the battlefield and no, saved yeah. somebody's life he was a war hero yeah but this is just a weird point because it doesn't even seem like it would suit the purposes of the empire. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, all good propaganda, all effective propaganda. Yes, it's all like patriotic, rah, 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 go team. But it's mm-hmm. also demonizing the bad, the enemy. So like World War. Boogeyman. Exactly. You have to make a boogeyman. I've got old uh, comic books like Captain America comics from World War II. And just as much as there is patriotic bullshit, there's also like. The only time you ever see a Japanese person, he's got fangs, you know, <laughs> and he's rubbing his hands together. It has some very wicked plot, you know, it, right. it's very, very uh, boogeyman-ish. And that's effective. That's how you sell the kids on these aren't real people. So I think he's just wrong here. So let's see. I think we're pretty much at the end of book two now. Oh, good. Um. And basically, it's just that God has no reason to lie. The demonic, which is not in our Christian sense negative, uh, he says the demonic and the divine are wholly free from lie. God is altogether simple and true indeed in speech, and he doesn't himself change or deceive others by illusions, speeches, or the sending of signs, either in waking or dreaming. So does that mean no reading the birds? Like no, um, no pagan astrology kind of stuff. If he says he doesn't, God doesn't send signs. He's almost like giving us this deism sort of thing. You know, no reading palms, no reading charts of the charts of the heavens. Cause God doesn't do that. Cause why would God encode his message? If God wants to talk to you, he just will. I think that's what he's saying. And so he doesn't want to teach the kids um, like superstition kind of stuff. He thinks that's going to get in the way of their development, which is interesting. So book three, 
Now he's talking about death. He wants to portray the afterlife as a, as a good place rather than a bad place because the soldiers have to be happy to die. They have to be willing and able to die. And they don't want to be afraid of Hades. Remember in the Odyssey when, when they all went down into Hades looking for, I always forget his name, the blind dude. It starts with a T. Tyreus. Yeah, Tyreus. Uh, when they went down looking for him and they meet Achilles and Achilles says, like, I would rather be a slave and alive than a king down here. Mm-hmm. And Socrates says that, well, we're going to have to get rid of that line, <laughs> you know, because we, we need people like Achilles and we need them to want to die. So that's interesting. Um, he also wants to get rid of like anytime anyone dies. He uh, doesn't want people to weep or lament their loss. He wants us to be happy that they're dead because the dead place is a good place. Mm-hmm. Very, very um, like foreshadowing of Christianity. Yeah, definitely. Although, again, he gets he, he overcorrects in the in one direction. So he only gives us heaven. But it's like we kind of also need hell. Because what are we going to do with all those evil subhuman Japanese people? <laughs> you know, like he forgets that you do need a boogeyman and he forgets that you do need a hell for your propaganda to work. Mm. You know, forgets or maybe nobody had ever got that far yet. Yeah, I don't know. But it's weird because remember in Phaedrus or uh, not Phaedrus, in uh, Phaedo, He does mention that like the afterlife would be composed of a good place, a neutral place and a bad place. Remember that? But was that him or, or um, it was him. Socrates who said that. Yeah. I guess in fairness, you could say that that takes place after this. So maybe his idea changed, but he developed it. Could be. We'll go with that. Yeah. He says that um, Achilles killed Hector. For the wrong reasons. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. So he's not mad that Achilles killed Hector, but he's mad that he did it out of concern and passion for a friend rather than out of patriotic duty. Which, again, if you're going to have an empire, maybe that's correct. Right. I don't like that. And I don't know that Socrates likes it either. But if you're going to have an empire, you need people to be to view the state basically as a person that they love more than anybody. Comedy is not allowed either. That's this is where he really lost me. This is where I draw the line. They shouldn't be lovers of laughter either. For when a man lets himself go and laughs mightily, he also seeks a mighty change to accompany his condition. So laughing lets you lose control. Laughing lets you lose control. <laughs> and we cannot have that. We need our people to be serious and stern and utterly humorless and dull. Boring. Yeah. Yeah, he really lost me with that. For the guardians. Only for the guardians. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. Is is he saying that because throughout this whole part where he's talking about this is how we rear the perfect guardians, there are also a couple lines in there where he says we wouldn't let anything like this in our city at all. So, yes, this is for the benefit of the guardians, but I think that these prohibitions would extend over the entire city. 
Yeah, I wonder. It's not clear. There is a line where it's clear, where he's talking about the performer and the different kinds of performers. And then there's one kind of performer who uses imitation and another kind of performer who describes. He's like, yes, we'll say this guy's a great performer, but he's not allowed in here. Mm, You're right. Yeah, they, they get rid of him. That's right. They don't just say that he's not allowed to talk to the guardians. They actually kick him out. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. See, Cause I was wondering the same thing. It does this just, but the thing is, is if it, it would have to apply to the whole city because if the guardians are patrolling the city, they're going to encounter this, this stuff they're not supposed to well, see. And everybody's schooled together at first at the youngest age. Yeah. So you would have to restrict all of their access because you don't know yet who's going to be a guardian. So for the benefit of the guardians, you need to repress everybody if they're going to be good guardians, right? Is that right? I think that is kind of what he's getting at, yes. But he's, it, I don't think it even matters to him. Like he's not even thinking about the, how this is going to be repressing a common person. I don't think that even it crosses his mind. He doesn't care. Right. Well, he wants. He's describing a very regimented population, mm-hmm. which is what you need if you're going to have a good empire. Mm-hmm. You need people to be in line. Right. So now we get to the noble lie. He says, "Truth must be taken seriously too, for if what we were just saying was correct, and a lie is really useless to gods and useful to human beings as a form of remedy, in other words, lying to make things appear better than they actually are." Um, it's plain that anything of the sort must be assigned to doctors while private men must not put their hands on it. So, and he's, so if you read the footnotes, doctors, another word he's using is like the guardians of the city are like the doctors of the city, right? They're the preservers of its health. So only, only politicians should be allowed to lie. It's appropriate for the rulers, if for anyone at all, to lie for the benefit of the city in cases involving enemies or citizens. We'll say that for a private man to lie to such rulers is a fault, the same as, and even greater than, for a sick man or man in training not to tell the truth about the affections of his body to the doctor or the trainer. So it's a crime for a citizen to lie to the politician, but it's perfectly man it's mandatory that the politician lie to the civilian very interesting well he didn't say mandatory but yeah well it's appropriate and it, it serves a function it probably will be necessary at some point or another yeah well and okay now here it comes the noble lie the very next page right where is this uh so what i was just reading from was 389C, where he says that uh, the rulers should lie and the citizens should not. It's a little longer till he gets to the noble lie. I was wrong, but it's definitely coming up. So then he talks more about like these, what the lies would be and they, the lies that he's referring to would be in the concoction of, of myths. And so it's the same thing that he was talking about in book two. Men ought to be, and women, the guardians uh, no, he doesn't give a shit what you teach women. No, that's incorrect. Uh, although he hasn't mentioned it yet, but women will be guardians too. Oh. Yeah, he completely desegregates the sexes in his city. Whoa, yeah. I did not see that Spoiler coming. Spoiler alert. Because um, he literally, when he's describing stories that we don't want to tell, he's like, we have no use for women in labor. 
Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, but he, 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 uh, he flops on that. He says, actually, I changed my mind, but that comes later. Okay. Um, so he, when he's talking about the guardians, he wants them to be taught stories that make them, uh, they, they essentially will not want gifts or money or anything. Being guardians will be its own reward. And um, so blah, 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 all this righteousness stuff. But I had a question and I wonder what you all think about it. Because he's talking all about these lies and how they need to be constructed in order to get the guardians to think a certain way. So the question is, what happens when, because it will happen inevitably, when one guardian and then another and then another find out that all these things are lies? Then what? Do they say, holy shit, my life is a lie. Everything's a lie, blah, 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 and then blow the whistle on the whole thing? Does that cause disrupt? What happens? And he doesn't address that, but I think that's a huge issue. If you're going to lie to people, the truth will come out eventually. And uh, it's again, it sounds like injustice to me because you're, they'll you're be labeled conspiracy theorists in shock. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, they will destabilize the social structure, which is unjust. You're, you're by creating these lies, you're putting your people in a position to become disruptive when they find out that they have been lied to. And the problem is, is because they have a lie, they you've given them nothing but lies and you've obfuscated the truth. When they do uncover the lie, they're not going to know what to lean on. They're not going to have the truth to lean on. So they're only going to be able to come up with another lie, which is probably just going to be to paint you, the, the city, as the bad guys now. You know, so you're going to go from the good guy to the bad guy. No nuance. And it's just going to cause problems. Well, and I, I think this goes back to that idea of, uh, you know, that the single purpose kind of thing and, you know, kind of separating people into their own particular little, uh, you know, thought group, group think kind of thing is that's how that's how this thing functions. And anybody that doesn't like toe the line of the official line, we've got to get rid of them because otherwise... Uh, you know, there's going to be chaos because the ruling class have to be the ruling class and that's got to be their specialty. And if they want to lie, they can do it. But the people down here, if they, they're going to do their thing, there's got to be a certain standard for them that's different. And they need to know that they have to obey these people because they got that, that specialty. And, and I, I think, again, this is where that system, the whole system really breaks down because if everybody has got access to all the information, really make their own choices, then that, that whole one specialty thing really starts to like lose gas and it, you know, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. A hundred percent. And he did, this is an issue. This is a big issue with this system that Glaucon really wanted. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so I thought that was interesting and, and worth raising. <laughs> uh, I thought it was ironic. He starts talking. He says that uh, he, he references some 
fable that ought to be done away with. And he says, on that account, such tales must cease for fear that they sow a strong proclivity for badness in our young. And I'm just thinking like, dude, why were you put to death for exactly the thing that you're talking about? He was put to death for exactly what he's talking about. I thought that was funny. I actually, I think I noticed that too. Yeah. That was funny. Why were you killed, Socrates, for (laughs) sowing a strong proclivity for badness in the young? Um, Okay, so now is where he gets into the thing about telling stories, imitation versus narration, Uh which uh, interesting thing to talk about, I thought. Um, Maybe we should read this, maybe we could read it 392 before it starts about this narration and imitation, because he makes a conclusion about what they were talking before. Mm -hmm. 392a. Uh, what form of speeches still remains for which we are to define the sort of thing that must and must not be said. Yeah. It has been stated how gods must be spoken about and demons and heroes and Hades domain. Most certainly. Wouldn't it be human beings who remain plainly? Well, my friend, it's impossible for us to arrange that at present. Why? Because I suppose we'll say that what both poets and prose writers say concerning the most important things about human beings is bad, that many happy men are unjust and many wretched ones just, and that doing injustice is profitable if one gets away with it, but justice is someone else's good and one's own loss. We'll forbid them to say such things and order them to sing and to tell tales about the opposites of these things, or wouldn't you suppose so? So he so going back to your the um the analogy between the individual and the city, he's saying like we haven't we still haven't found what we mean by justice yet, right? That's what I got out of it. What? What um, he just read? Yeah. That's you, not what I got. What did you get out of it? Not much. Not much <laughs> he made a conclusion of what we did before. So how are we supposed to talk about the gods? And we decided that there are specific ways how we should do this. Mm-hmm. And the question is still open about uh, uh, the human beings to talk about, how we should talk about human beings. Right. And uh, from the conclusion we made this, uh, we shouldn't do this, that injustice brings benefits. This we decided. Anyway, we have to go now at first uh, how do we talk about human beings? And he comes back to the Iliad with his examples, and there's a form of narration. And the bad thing sometimes would be to imitate, the imitation. So he speaks very long about this problem, so the mm-hmm. which I have to come to get on terms with still. But this seems to be very important for him, this differentiation between imitation and narration in the way we talk about human beings. In, uh, I think it begins with the Iliad in the beginning. Sometimes. I don't remember exactly. Um, yeah, he talks about, he says, tell me, do you know the first things in the Iliad where the poet tells of Chryses' begging Agamemnon to ransom his daughter? Sorry. And Agamemnon's uh, harshness and Chryses calling down curses from the god on the Achaeans when he failed. So, yeah, he's talking about... Um, how when Homer tells the story, he puts himself in the role of the character. And, you know, he 
throws the old quotation marks up and says, and she said, blah, 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 and, and pretends to be her. Whereas the alternative, and he, he actually gives the alternative, he said, or you could just do it like a, a reporter and just say, and then Chryseis did this, and then she did this, and then she did this, instead of adopting her perspective. So there are two types of narrative, simple, matter-of-fact reporting and imitative. And the irony, the meta-irony, is that this book, even though he says um, he winds up concluding that the most virtuous thing for the guardians to be instilled with is narration because it's just the facts and one man, one job. And so it doesn't make any sense for you to impersonate someone else because you're not good at being someone else. You're good at being you. And so you should only be you. Uh, and so I totally disagree with that. But he uh, that's what he says. But the irony is that this whole book is imitative. This whole book is Plato writing as Socrates. So... <laughs> You know, and he's quoting everybody. He says, Glaucon said this, Adamantus said that. So there's an irony there. Um, I don't know what to make of that exactly. I don't know if, again, I don't know if this is on purpose or what. I hope so. So what did you think about that bit uh, where he talks about the two types of of narration? I think it's again about this sort of oneness so that you can't divide yourself into... Mm-hmm. You have to retain to the same style. Yeah. And from this, he comes to the music. Uh, so this may be some sort of coming to the next scene. It's not quite clear what would be the danger. I, d- I don't remember exactly the quote where you, what's the danger if you make the narrator. Uh, the yeah. Imitation, the imitation. So this would be you get outside yourself. In some sort, like an actor in a tragedy or a comedy. He says, now, Ad- now, Adamantus, reflect on whether our guardians ought to be imitators or not. Or does this follow from what went before, that each one would do a fine job in one activity, but not in many? And if he should try to put his hand to many, he would surely fail of attaining fame and all. Doesn't the same argument also hold for imitation? The same man isn't able to imitate many things as well as one. Then he'll hardly pursue any of the noteworthy activities while at the same time imitating many things and being a skilled imitator. For even in two kinds of imitation that seem close to one another, like writing comedy and tragedy, the same men aren't capable of producing good imitations in both at the same time. Nor are they able to be rhapsodes and actors at the same time. Blah, blah, blah. It's so a he, load of hooey. It is. He's wrong. He's incorrect. It's a, it's a load of hooey. He has no idea what artists are capable and of. And he's deducing it. Yeah. <laughs> you like that one? <laughs> it's a special expression, a load of hooey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A load of hooey. Like, it's like bullshit. Yeah. Baloney. Hooey. I don't know where. I don't know where hooey comes from, actually. Uh, the Appalachian Mountains, I do believe. Yeah, it sounds like a load of hooey. Yeah, so you can you can use that one. Use this in Russian. Hooey. <laughs> <laughs> this part was Sorry. so frustrating for me because I felt like he went on and on and on about it. He doesn't even draw good conclusions, and it doesn't make any sense to me why this would be important. Well, because he's deducing this from a premise that we already got rid of. That we got rid of. He keeps it. The premise that one man, one job. I, we've, I think we all disagree that that's yeah. 
or at least we've criticized it, but he's just going for, this is a direct deduction from that premise, but I don't accept that premise. Okay. Therefore, I don't accept this conclusion. Okay. Um, yes, but if it's uh, one person, if you want to one soul, it would, be, it would make sense. Right. So like you can only be yourself. So Homer cannot imitate Agamemnon even though he does imitate Agamemnon, he shouldn't because there's no way that he'll be able to imitate Agamemnon as well and as fairly as he might imitate Achilles. And so the story becomes tainted and imbalanced. But I think that what he's neglecting is that narration, like storytelling itself is an art. And so I don't think you can tell a story without imitation, even if you are reporting it. Not a good one. You're still, well, right. It's not going to be a good story. But even if you're just reporting the facts, quote unquote, you're still coloring your story with your own perceptions. And so it's like the reporting aspect can pretend to be objective, which is what he wants, I think. But when someone tells a story, everyone knows it's a story. You know, so think of like mm -hmm. a short story versus a newspaper article. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows the short story is fiction. The newspaper article might be fiction too, but it pretends to be objective. And I, so I think that's an issue that he's not really seeing here. Or he is seeing well, it and is okay with All the time circling around this idea of the oneness of the soul, which you would supposedly has to come back at some point. So yeah. is this possible, oneness of a soul, or is it not possible? I don't think that's real. I contain Di multitudes. Yeah, I think it would be dynamic. And just like the city, as once we get a little further and talk about the noble lie, he says that the city is supposed to contain like three elements to it. Um, well, then the soul would at least contain these things as well. Well, and I'm frustrated by this too, because it's a complete contradiction of the conclusions that were drawn in Parmenides. Interesting. How so? Well, Elaborate. in Parmenides the conclusion is that the one is a fractal entity containing multitudes. Right. And so when I, the whole time I was reading Parmenides, I, maybe this was a mistake, but I thought the one is an analogy for the soul. Yeah. Could be right. But now, yeah. So that, that you're right. That does fly in the face of this one man, one job, one soul thing. I don't believe the soul is like a rock. Right. It's something, I mean, if anything, it's more like his ball of wax from Theotetus, mm -hmm. where it's moldable, malleable, impressionable. So you can do all kinds of different wonderful things with it. Mm -hmm. But in this, he, he in his empire, mm -hmm. and again, maybe this is a subtle criticism. In the empire, the soul has to be a static thing. Mm -hmm. But everywhere else, he doesn't believe that. But when he's mm -hmm. talking about the militaristic empire, one man, one job, everyone's got to be locked in. Mm -hmm. You cannot deviate. So I don't know. Is this a criticism? Um, anyway, so, so it's we are just in the third book. So this right. doesn't have to be the end. So this is a long road we have to go. And so mm -hmm. yeah, we, So I don't, I'm interested with what he comes for in the end. So. You're <laughs> advising wait. us to be patient <laughs> with him. Let's wait. He might surprise us. Um, because uh, he just can go on like this because his yes, you are right. Say some criticism and we've been beforehand. You, should, you <laughs> have to 
talk. Uh, because you see, yeah, it's okay. Then you have to admit it. Uh, then we go like this. If, uh, if you say this, okay, then we go like this. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No, that's right. He's he's saying that if we accept these premises, then this must follow. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily saying the premises are true. You're right. We should be more patient with him because in so many of his you dialogues. You should be more patient like, with him. Thank you, Danny. In so many of his dialogues, he'll get halfway through it. And then he's like, I think we need to start over with new premises. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's good. He's good. So yeah, he could, we can get to book five or whatever. And he could just be like, you know, all that stuff we just said, throw it all in the garbage. <laughs> yeah. So I, this is, you, know, you got to respect him. Yeah. He doesn't marry his ideas, which is great. Uh, so yeah. Okay. So let's take that point then. If we accept the premise that one man, one job, the oneness of the soul, then yes, it would follow that imitative writing is bad because it will not be done well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that he's right. His logic is sound. It's just the question is, is the premise accurate? Um, I hope that later on they will touch on that premise again. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that ironically, I actually don't know if they do. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Um, but I do hope so because I don't agree with that premise. Um, so he goes on the narration thing for a few pages. And now I think it's time for us to get to the new boy. Okay. Um, oh, one more thing though. Cause, okay. to, cause he talks about music a little bit. Um, and he mentions how like the tones of the music that are listened to are going to affect the emotions and attitudes of the populace, mm-hmm. which is a very astute observation. Mm-hmm. Um, and does he say it in here? It's also that, a, f- a fascinating passage just from a historiographical, that's not a word. Historiographic. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, point of view, because you get a little bit of insight into the way that they wrote music. Yeah. Um, and the different styles. And he's talking about how there's a Lydian style and a Thracian style. I don't know. I get a kick out of that stuff. Yeah. He says what kind, what, you know, what music is useful for war making. It instills certain attitudes. and there's this idea that if you change the music, then the laws are probably about to change too. Cause it, and you think like That's the Confucius, isn't it? I think Confucius said that, that if you change a nation's music, expect its laws to change as well. And, you know, the obvious example is the sixties counterculture, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, okay, well, point taken. <laughs> you change the culture, the music, then those changes are going to reflected, be reflected politically. Mm-hmm. And it's in that direction. It's not politics, then music. It's music, then politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wouldn't go with the strings to the battle. Right. Yeah. <laughs> go with the big drum. Flutes, <laughs> these special bands which were used all the time. <laughs> Uh, oh, and I found the bit that you were talking about before, which is, it's a good one. I'll read it into the record. Uh, it, okay. It's 398A, where he says that if a man who is able by wisdom to become every sort of thing and to imitate all things should come to our city, wishing to make a display of himself and his poems, we would fall on our knees before him as a man sacred, wonderful, and pleasing. But we would say that there is no such man, a man among us in the city. 
nor is it lawful for such a man to be born there. We would send him to another city with myrrh poured over his head and crowned with wool, while we ourselves would make a more austere and less pleasing poet and teller of tales for the sake of our benefit, one who would imitate the style of the decent man and would say what he says in those modes that we set down as laws at the beginning when we undertook to educate the soldiers. And it's like, we can't have an incredible person because that disrupts the rigidity of our system. No George Carlin allowed here. No Carlin's allowed. No man is God. So he's saying like, this is a dude that we would think of as sacred. And that's why we don't want him. We don't want a God man. Mm-hmm. Because we have, God is but a he, political entity in the, in this Republic. But he also has a problem with the art that person's practicing. Yes. Yes, he does have an issue with it. And because it's also another thing it's going to do is it's going to get people to want to imitate that. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to be as good, but they're going to think they're as good. And then you have, no, but it just, I think it would follow. Like, this is why you can't have a great person like that. Cause some other people, it's going to influence the kids. And then they're not going to want to be carpenters and soldiers anymore. Right. Or, or they're not going to want to subscribe to the old way of storytelling. And it's going to blow the whole system apart because now you're going to have a bunch of mediocre hacks trying to imitate this one guy. Well, this sounds really familiar to me. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he talks about uh, the music. He wants war music and saint music. He wants war uh, music for the violent deeds. And he also wants music that will be played that will encourage people to um be uh, generous to their countrymen. And that's about it. That's it. No, uh, no lascivious music. Mm-hmm. Licentious. Is that the word he uses? Yes. Yes. Licentiousness. You know, this uh, church. Scales? What's that? The scales. So the, the scales, which is, I don't know if they are talking in uh, the antiquity, but later in the middle ages, there was a so-called Church scales, which would be the Phrygian scale, the Lydian scale, the Doric scale, which would, uh, if you have a piano, you just, so if you play C major, this would be the Ionian, from C to C. If you play from D to D on the piano without black, black keys, this would be the Dorian. begin from E from E, but this would be the in the Middle Ages. From E you start this would be a special uh, scale which was used only for special texts in the Middle Ages. If you start from E you have above the E right a half half tone. Which would uh, be a special effect if you go from the F to the E at the end with a half tone. So this would only be used uh, in special, mostly of the time, I think, sad text. Okay. So these were used uh, in the special modes. These were called church modes, not scales. Modes. In the All right. Modes, which would be up to Johann Sebastian Bach. And then they which minor and major would be two of these modes which stayed and the other was thrown away for for some time. But afterwards in the 19th century when they were tired all the time using minor and major, 
they came back to the uh, church modes and they came back and they used others so they, they either want to we now want to use want to have something else so they studied the pentatonic mode which came from uh, Japanese music which was in the uh, world exposition in Paris and so th they were all the time searching for a new sort of scales modes, which would also because in China I think they, they dropped this. you could say it's a bit exaggerated they dropped the half dance with the pentatonic you can play everything what you what you want to play and there will be no dissonance so this is a bit of the exaggeration but if you only use the black keys on the piano you have a pentatonic mode and you can okay. play it all the time and you will not have dissonances like if you use uh, white keys also and which whichever mode would be used would reflect what it, like in the context of the church it would reflect whatever season it was whatever like church you know, the church has different uh, times of year and they reflect text, different. Text. It would we reflect the text, which mode was used for. Right, right. And so the, the music would complement and really undergird whatever spiritual uh, lesson was to be taught in that mass or whatever. It would, uh, it would, it would work towards affecting the psychological and even physiological state of of the individuals attending that mass. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I mean if you've ever been to a Catholic church, that shit works. Do you remember that guy that Jan Irvin interviewed like 7 years ago? Hans Utter? Yes. Sure. That's yeah. what that makes me. Think. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's actually like 7 hours long or something. I'm going to re-listen to that was a good interview. You should. I've got it on MP3. That was yeah, I like that one. And I brought it up. I swear it's not a tangent. If you listen to it, you'll know what I'm talking about. They, yeah, I think they mentioned Plato. They <laughs> mentioned this. Hans yep. Hans Utter. U-T-T-E-R. Um, he actually is a professor at OSU. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interview with him and Jan Irvin from, I don't know, 2014? Somewhere in that area of time. So years ago. Uh, yeah, it's like seven, eight parts long. I don't know if it's still on YouTube. Um, Maybe you can send him if, a copy that you have. Yeah, if, if it's not on YouTube, let me know and I can get you the MP3s because I've got them. Um, and they just, it's called Music, Mind Control, and Psychobiology. Oh, yes, that's right. And uh, it, if you want to go deep into like just this, this part of what Plato is talking about, it's, the series isn't about Plato, but if you want to explore these ideas more deeply, then that's, that's what I would recommend. But you um, could also argue that the way of singing in the... Right, this is... What is it called? It's not cloister. It's cloister, or what is it called? In monast monastery, monastery, as it's called. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a monastery. Mm -hmm. Because I, uh, I mix it up because in Russia it's monastery, so it's the same ah. right. Yeah, monastery. Um, because the first monasteries, I think this would be a correct historical account, were, were soldiers, which in Egypt. 
So soldiers which were remnants of the fallen Roman Empire, which built the first monastery. And this would be everywhere in the Roman Empire when it fell down. And uh, these sort of singing came from the from the Near East, where were these scales which were used. This would be like more like uh, half tones and like this, like if you. Yeah. This was this, this the first Christian songs would sound like this. So from this sort of church in the Near East. But when mm. the thought of singing came to the to the West, uh, this uh, character was changed by time because at some point they wanted to make this uh, polypho polyphony, and so there were many voices—not many, but two or three together—and you couldn't stay to this sort of melodies because it would be difficult to 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 make this in the polyphony mm -hmm. this was a development a special development of music in the west which came to writing it down also, which would be the unique uh, form of music developed by the west which uh, would be the follow-up very different time so you have this uh, with the development of the piano like uh, uh, instruments with uh, very abstract instrument, which is uh, you don't directly use the strings. You have uh, this construction, which would be a very rational way to to make a musical instrument, which didn't appear in, in any other part of the world. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Well, that's a the um, geography of music and culture is another interesting aspect because it's going to reflect the environment. You know, maybe not so much now because we've got mass production and imperialism, but way back when the kind of instruments you could construct would be based on the sorts of materials that are available to you. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be, the, therefore, the kind of music that you produce is going to be really tied into the environment in which you live. Mm -hmm. And so not only is the, and he doesn't talk about this, but uh, the music itself is going to reflect desired cultural attitudes but the actual sounds that come out of those instruments will be de determined by the natural resources which exist and are consumed and valued and cherished mm -hmm. by those individuals and so it's going to leave a cultural imprint that runs deeper than just the mere music itself might uh, suggest to somebody like me who's a American cosmopolitan, you know, I just hear music and I can, you know, <laughs> oh, cool. That was a cool song. That's catchy. <laughs> but really, uh, there's a deeper appreciation to be had for the impact of music on our, our bodies and minds. And it really runs into the ground, this stuff. And so I, I think that you mean literally, literally into the ground and out of the ground is where music comes from because oh. your instruments come from wood or whatever, you know, mm. brass, for God's sake, it all comes out from the ground. And if you don't have, if you live in a culture where there's not much wood, you know, like in the Middle East, for instance, you listen to their music, you know, like the Jewish shofar, the horn, you know, they don't have lutes, they've got something else. Mm -hmm. And so that determines the sort of music that they actually wind up, um, they wind up making, because mm -hmm. the medium is the message. <laughs> uh, you also mentioned the singing which plato mentions in here because this is all about propaganda essentially 
and uh, getting people to conform to the dictates of, of the laws and conform to whatever it is that justice winds up being, he says that the, the music itself should be subordinate to the lyrics. We should prioritize the actual words that are mm-hmm. said, and then the music should just complement that, mm. which, you know, I guess if you're going to have propaganda music, that might be accurate. But if you want to have good music, you're probably going to want to tone down the singing and ramp up on the instrumental bits. That's my opinion. Yeah, it's a matter but of opinion. It is a matter of opinion. But for his propaganda to work, it's going to have to be a lot of, you know, glory, glory, hallelujah. And let the music uh, carry the, the singing rather than the other way around. So I thought that was the quote. If you have a holy book, you want to uh, sing. You, of course, important. The text is the most important. Uh, this is this is clear. Exactly, exactly. It's because music, just pure music, is pure emotive. You listen to a wonderful song, and like you know, you're welled up with emotion. But there's no um, no ideas are being funneled into your brain explicitly. But if you put lyrics on top of that music, it opens you up to that emotive experience. And then when you're um, impressionable in that moment, in that moment of musical joy and ecstasy, then they can implant these ideas of patriotism and loyalty and duty and war and all that what and all that stuff. Uh, so it becomes a really effective tool of programming. And he seems to acknowledge that. In, in orthodox uh Religion, of course, there are no instruments are allowed in the church. Only sing. Well, there you go. <laughs> It's all about the communication. That's Even though the peasants didn't speak. And this was, of course, in the, yeah. in the Middle Ages, of course, in the Western church also. So this came no later, yeah. later with a special uh, instrument, the organ. Yeah, and he, he here it is. Here's what he says. He says, rhythm and harmony, most of all, insinuate themselves into the inmost part of the soul and most vigorously lay hold of it in bringing grace with them. Yeah. And they make a man graceful if he is correctly reared, if not, the opposite. Mm-hmm. So music captures some sort of impressionable part of the soul, opens it up, and then that's when you can stuff in all the quote-unquote good ideas about being the right kind of citizen. And here it is. He says that, you know, this is how you become a gentleman. Our guardians won't be reared on images of vice. So no Cardi B. It's all, uh, I don't even know. It's all like Cardi American B's music bandstand. is about being hardworking. <laughs> Cardi B's music is about having a work ethic. Yes, but it, it engages in and glorifies licentiousness. What, because she wiggles her ass? Yes. As, as the great philosopher Mickey, the coach from Rocky, said, <laughs> women weaken legs. <laughs> so, yeah. It's a self-defense mechanism. You got, these dudes have to be tough. They can't be all, oh, booty. They have to be ready for war. It's distracting. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's distracting. Um, anyway. <laughs> Let's see. What else? He talks about this for a long time. I know. I really thought he was going on and on. Did you think it was too much? 
I usually do. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, it's his book. He can go on for okay. as long as he wants. Well, how about this? He introduces right here the concept of platonic love, which is interesting. So, again, operating on the premise, one man, one job, he says that, you know, sexual lust is something that is one thing in and of itself, whereas love, like genuine love for another person comes... From boy. Yeah, he's talking talking about about men. He's talking about. He doesn't say anything about loving a woman. That is not relevant to his conversation, as far as he's concerned. He's talking about male-male relationships. He says lust is one thing, but love is never about lust. Love is about something else. It's about things that you share in common, ideas that you can share, conversations that you can have. One man, one job. Ergo, you can't have both in one relationship. You have to have the love over here, the true love, and then lust over here separate. And this is where the idea of platonic love comes from, is you love somebody truly, and you're, if you really love them, uh, again, male on male, then your relationship is incredibly intimate, but it's never sexual, because that would ruin it. It's only about the intellectual um, parlay that you share that uh, this is where that comes from. This is where he actually lays that idea down. The idea of a platonic relationship, people talk about that. Don't, oh, this is where that comes from. A plato- this is what that means. Oh, okay. This is the paragraph that origin originates. I have to go now. Okay. All right. Well, we probably we should, probably should wrap up. Anyway. We didn't talk about the noble eye. Do you, okay, so <laughs> do you want to just do what we did last time? We can hit the, the noble lie, the rest of book three. And move on to book four. Okay. okay. Well, then we'll do that. Um, yeah, we can get going. To, we, have to, we have to deal with bank stuff. Oh, no. So, I totally <laughs> forgot about that. So the good part of our day is over. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. Michael Ludger, have a splendid day. You too. Take care. All right.